was running behind the car that day as they left and I make the turn, light the signal and turn on their way to Neshoba County. This is Live the Legacy, a podcast presented to you by the Andrew Goodman Foundation. The Black community and the Jewish community have so much in common and also I believe, you know, fighting anti-Semitism and fighting racism also go hand in hand. Today's guests include Bernice Sims, a veteran of the civil rights movement. She's been an active member of the NAACP and CORE since she was a teenager in the early 1960s. She's also the author of the book Detour Before Midnight, which is her personal account of the last few hours she and her family spent with Andrew Goodman, James Earl Cheney, and Michael Schwerner before they were abducted and murdered by the KKK on June 21st, 1964. We will also be joined by Wynn Garfinkel. Wynn is a student, a rising senior currently 20 years old, at the University of Louisville, studying communication and Jewish studies. For the past two years, Wynn served as the president of U of L's Hillel, as well as being an Andrew Goodman Foundation My Vote Everywhere campus ambassador and an ambassador for band conversion therapy KY. As a queer Jewish woman, Wynn believes that voting is one way we can stand up to the unjust systems that are currently in place. further ado, please enjoy the first episode of Live the Legacy as we bridge the past and the present to move forward together. So Bernice, could you tell us what it was like growing up in Meridian, Mississippi? And then as you're talking about that experience, can you talk about how Meridian became a sort of epicenter for the civil rights movement? Okay. All right. Well, what it was like growing up in Meridian, Mississippi, I came up as a, you know, in the, in the 50s. Um, I was born in the 40s, as you can imagine. I'm a baby boomer. And uh, it was very much uh, Jim, it was a Jim, referred to as the Jim Crow South. Uh, it was very clearly defined lines in terms of the role of uh, the, the segregation uh, within my community. I went to a uh, all-black uh, school. Uh, I went to uh, whenever I went downtown, I visit the, uh, I saw the colored and the white water fountains, colored only water fountains. Uh, it was the same thing when we went to um, the restaurants. Well, we could not really use the restaurants unless it was through the back door. We didn't have Burger Kings and things of that nature as they have now. Um, it was for the most part, the uh, in terms of our um you know, using utilizing the hotels. There were some uh, black-owned businesses in um, in Meridian. We did have some um, uh, black or African American doctors and dentists that, for the most part, we used. Um, it was uh, it was for the most part everything was segregated, and um, we uh, we understood that that was uh, something that we basically understood. But at the same token, there were some resistance to uh, being in a, living in a 
society, especially when I began to learn about the uh, the government. I was a student that loved the government. I love history, and I start learning about the you know three branches of government and the and the fact that uh, in our constitution and the amendments and the fact that we were supposed to be free and entitled to the same things that every other human being, that particular strong interest in government and that strong, and also my religious upbringing uh, really helped me to um, realize that what was going on, the environment that I was living in was, was wrong and was something very, uh, felt very uncomfortable for me, even at a very young age. And, um, and I, I think that I began to, at a very early age, begin to rebel against a system that seems so suppressive of me as a human being. I'd love to hear a little bit more about your experience as you continued growing up. Um, so in your book, Detour Before Midnight, you give your personal account of the last few hours of the lives of Andrew Goodman, James Cheney, and Michael Schwerner. Will you describe for us in your own words now what that night was like and why your home served as a host home for many civil rights workers during that time? Okay. Well, first of all, I want to clear, it was morning. It was uh, Father's Day. It was Father's Day, June 21st. Uh, 1964 was Father's Day. It was a Sunday. It was during the day. Um, now, prior to that day, I had been involved. Michael Schwerner had been in, uh, and his wife, Rita, uh, I call him Mickey. If I say Mickey, I mean Michael Schwerner. If I talk about James Cheney, I might say J.E., because J.E. was my next door neighbor. And I just had just met Andrew Goodman that day, that same day that he came to Meridian, to Mississippi. Um, I had been involved because I had been involved in the early part of the, uh, you know, the uh, NAACP and the protests under with uh, with Mega Everest, and also I had been involved with the some call we were trying to get the freedom vote, the work that Fannie Lou Hamer. I was had been involved with that. Somehow, when the uh, Freedom Summer workers came, they were aware of the fact that there were a bunch of us. It was probably about twelve of us youth that had been involved already, had been young activists. So they knew that also my home uh, was a place, it served two points. It was a host home, but also my home was very popular because my brothers, two older than me, Marshall and David, actually David, uh, my brother, was a student barber. He cut all of their hair. They got haircuts the day before they were, the same day that they were, they were murdered. Uh, they came by my home. My brothers were student barbers. They were active in the youth youth activists, along with me and about 12 others. They were also good barbers. They could cut anybody's hair. They could cut white, black, anybody's hair. They were good barbers. In Mississippi, because of the uh, accent, any when the Freedom Summer Workers came, they could recognize the Southern, the white supremacists there in the clans. They recognized the voice if you were you were from the north, so they couldn't go to the barber shop and ask for a haircut because right away they would be they would be ostracized and God knows what else might have happened to them. So our home we was known. This is where everybody could come. All the white civil rights workers from everywhere could come to my home and get their haircut because my brothers were very good at it. Plus we were involved in the movement. 
also my home was a place where my mother, uh, why she opened her home up. She said, you know, what these people are fighting for is things that should be ours anyway. If they're going to go change their lives, leave the, leave the North, come away from safety to come here to help us in fighting for things that we should have been entitled to and they realized it was theirs by their birthright, then we have a responsibility to help and do whatever we can. So my home kind of opened up. Also the fact that my father had a union job and many people were being fired and homes were being bombed and our church was you know, burned as well. Anything that they felt that was set up for voter registration, you know, they got rid of. But my father, in terms of his job, he went through a lot on his job that I found out about later. But they couldn't fire him because of the union that he was connected with. So we were kind of free to bring people in and out of our homes, give them a free warm meal, warm bath. My mother was very good at that. These people have been traveling from a long way. Anything she could do to help the cause, that was her feelings, and she was willing to do it and take that risk. Uh, so that's part of why, and there were other homes like that in the South, but ours was, uh, we didn't, you know, in terms of the trying to lose the loss of the job, my father didn't because he allowed the civil rights workers to come into the home. Um, on that day, as I said, it was a, a father's day and they had brought, uh, Andy, they mainly wanted us, my brothers and myself to meet Andy, the new, we call the new recruit. Now, Andy was supposed to go somewhere else in northern Mississippi. He had another site, but he was selected with uh, because of his relationship with uh, Michael Swerner and James Cheney. When they had met in Ohio for the training, they found that they were a good match. So uh, he ended up coming to Meridian instead of going to a place he was originally assigned to go. And he wanted them also to meet, you know, my family because we had been involved months and months earlier. Here's a place that you can go, feel comfortable, you can eat, sleep. These people are all for you. You don't have to watch your back. Many of them had spent overnight in my home. So uh, they really want, we want you to meet the new recruit, Andy, that day. And, um, you know, it was, it was a very, you know, uh, it was a very good day uh, that it, in many ways in my home, that it exchanged with us those few hours. For a long time, I didn't want to talk about it because I remembered the good times, but after I found out what happened, it was very difficult. It was a very difficult thing for me to juggle. But as I remember that day, we had a lot of fun. We, laughed, we had a lot of laughs. We sang. We played games. Um, I was getting working to get to know Andy because he was shy, but he just didn't know us. So I spent a lot of time going to him and bringing him fried chicken and cupcakes and things of that nature that my mother was getting prepared for for a long Sunday because, you know, those two things, fried chicken and cupcakes, had a long shelf life. <laughs> so we going to travel. It was a beautiful day and it was fun. And, you know, uh, Michael Swerner always got in, into conversations with my mother about atheism and being agnostic. And she didn't understand because she's a Christian. She didn't understand someone being agnostic. You know, uh, Michael Swerner, Mickey was telling her about he didn't disbelieve in God, but he he was agnostic. He believed in the possibility. And she thought that meant, oh, he's an atheist. So she spent a lot of her time trying to, she thought, but for months and months and months trying to convert him to Christianity. She didn't understand Jew, Jewish 
<laughs> religion and belief. So uh, in that morning, that day, uh, there was a, we had a, a minister, you know, a black minister was on the radio preaching one of these hellfire damnation kind of sermons where you have to do the call and response. And um, so for some reason, she had been, as I said, my mother had been working on him for months. And that morning, for some reason, that particular day, I think he decided to have a little fun with my mother. I'm not really sure to this day. I don't know what happened. But he started mimicking the African-American minister on the radio and said, yeah, yeah, amen. And he was going on and on. And then we were singing. And then Andy came in. Eventually, Andy came inside of the house. He was sitting on the porch. And also um, uh, J.E., who was like a brother to me because he lived next door to me most of my life, came in. And they start singing. They start singing hymns and going on and just reacting to all of this. It was like church, you know. And uh, matter of fact, it was so much so that my father who had to go to work later that day, he said to me many times, he said, you know, he said, I don't want to go to church. I feel like I've been to church already. So it was that kind of exchange. It was so wonderful. And everybody was involved. And I, and also I kept saying, why, why can't I go? Because I had been on what we call missions before. I had gone with them when we went, tried to find sites that we would pick out for voter registration or a community center or something very similar to what we had in Meridian. Meridian had one of the first freedom schools, and it was like the premier school where all the other uh, freedom schools around the uh, state came, you know, have their national convention. So we had been, I had been involved in going out in the field and trying to set up sites with them. I had gone with them before in that station, not that particular station wagon, but another one. And, uh, you know, to do the work out in the fields and, and um, with no fear because, you know, we had our group. So I, I didn't know why I couldn't go with them that day. And Mickey talked me out of it. And we had a little fight about it. And he said, it's not a place for a girl to go. There's a burnt church. They burn it down. It's not a place for girls to walk around in dresses. Because at that time, we wore dresses. We weren't wearing pants. And this wouldn't be, you know, it, it's not a good place for a girl to be. So I said, well, I've gone before. I don't know why you give me such a hard time. And then he said, well, we'll come back for your brother. And my brother wanted him to come back. He had a lot of heads to cut because he put them in the front of the line because he knew they were going on to Neshoba County to also to interview some of the people who had the week before uh, had been uh, beat up and uh, in the church ground. They were looking for Mickey's looking for them. If you know the story, they were looking for them. They were in Ohio at the time in the training center. So they had gone by on a Wednesday night prayer meeting and beat up a lot of the parishioners looking for Mickey and looking for, you know, uh, J James Cheney. And also, so they had gotten, some of them had gotten hurt up badly and they were hospitalized or beat up. So they wanted to go, they felt responsible because they had been there and got them to agree for this site. So they wanted to go and interview them and talk to them and see how they were. And I, I had been there in the past. I've been there before. So I, I wanted to go. And he talked me out of it uh, and said, you know, Bernice, you're more needed in the COFO office, you know, for the phones, answer the phone. And any time he would say to me, well, you're more needed here. I believe that. And I accepted that. I respected that. Mm -hmm. So uh, that's pretty much what that morning was like. And then I, you know, settled with, well, you know, wait a while. Let me packed some lunch. My mother and I got together and packed up some more fried chicken and 
cupcakes. And I was, and I remember when the car left my home, I was running down I, some more, another batch of fried chicken had come in and I was going to give it to them. And I'm running down the street on 31st Avenue. It's now called Martin Luther King Drive. And with this bag, shaking it up in the rearview mirror. So maybe they would see me and I was trying to get them to stop. I was running behind the car that day as they left and I make the turn, the light, the signal and turn on their way to Neshoba County. Um, so it was, it was, it's a nice day. It was a fun day. In some ways, it was a spiritual day. Um, you know, uh, James Cheney was saying, you know, I'm, I'm doing this. I'm doing this for my my child. I, you know, it's though they they had some kind of premonition. I thought sometime they had a kind of a premonition uh, about something that wasn't that clear to us that day. And as I think back, you know, maybe they did feel something. But the thing, the gift, biggest gift that Mickey um, Swerner or Michael Swerner gave to my mother when he responded to the minister on the radio and, you know, when he left, you know, she said, oh, well, you know, I think I finally converted him from Judaism to from being an agnostic to a Christian. She thought her work was done. <laughs> my mother, And they had a very, they had a very a very fun, unusual relationship where they, you know, they had these beautiful fights and we would see them, these love spats, and we would, we would leave them alone because they, uh, they would be in the kitchen. He would be eating the food and they would have their wonderful fats. And he would also, he believed in a sense of fairness. Uh, and I remember talking to Andy about this as well. He believed, they were talking about believing in the good, ultimately believing in the goodness of man. And uh, on the other end, you had another James Chain and my brother saying, you don't know these people here. They don't care about that. You know, they have, basically they were saying they have no conscience. Some people don't believe in anything else that, but, but white supremacy. And they see anything that's going to dampen that, uh, stand in the way of maintaining this thing that they hold on to, this ideology, because that's all it is, of white supremacy. They will, you know, step on their mother. They'll kill their mother to fight for that. So, you know, it was an innocent and a beautiful innocent of wonderful people who were just trying to do the right thing for someone else who they felt as though were being disenfranchised and not living up to the dream of our Constitution. It says, you know, we, we hold these truths, we self-evidence that all men are created equal. You know, they, uh, they really believed that they were idealists. I was an idealist. Uh, and I'm still an idealist. I, I do believe it's something we're fighting for, you know, in terms mm -hmm. of our democracy, because that's what we're talking about. Wow. That was so amazing to hear about that day. I think sometimes before tragedy strikes, we only think about um, just the horror of it. But to hear about how that day was for you spiritual and a, a good day, a fun day. Um, it's very powerful. Um, so thank you so much for sharing that with us. It added to the guilt of me not wanting to talk about it for so long because when you're juggling the horror, when you find out what happened and then you think about that, it made, it was really, it, it, it really added to my guilt. And being some of the one being some of the last people to maybe see them alive, I never felt as though that was my right. I, I, it, it really added to my collective uh, survival guilt for many, 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 many years. Could you tell us a little bit about 
what were some of the strategies that you used to get people registered to vote during that time? Yes, I can. Well, the Freedom School had been established in Meridian, and that was a ran by, um, you know, it started off with, that was the whole idea who had set the thing in motion was uh, Michael Swarner and his wife, Rita. They had come down, they had collected books from the North, they had a library, they had a, a center there. There was uh, people there was that had medical backgrounds that was able to offer some support medically for the people, was able to extend that into the community. There were some of the other, the Freedom School used, they had, uh, there was there were snacks, there was entertainment, there were uh, there was a situation whereby they had an opportunity to learn a lot about their own black history that wasn't being taught in the schools, uh, plays, they'd be involved with dance, uh, some languages. There was a person there. I remember we had a, a, uh, a person from the uh, in the Freedom School, one of the teachers who knew French. They were teaching languages. And they were also joined together to go to the pool, the local uh, pools, the uh, swimming pools to teach swimming. There were some also uh, equestrian. My, I had a younger sister who was learning to ride a, a pony. Uh, well, one of the things that was the incentive to get the uh, one of, as you said, the strategies to get the whole idea was to get uh, people, the uh, the um, the older people there to register and vote. Even some of the ones that could not read or write. Well, we had gone out earlier in, to the in the communities where uh, with sharecroppers and people who had, had not had the education. That freedom vote that Fannie Lou Hamer was part of her uh, part of her thing, Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party. Early on, we had gone out and found people who could not write their names, and we they would put an X, but we knew who they were. We put their names down. Once the Freedom School opened. A big piece of it was teaching literacy, teaching people to read and write their own uh, their names. Excuse me. And um, when they came to the freedom schools, we had fabric there. Some people could sew. Uh, the children were able to attend and participate in a lot of the social activities after school and on the weekends, because they would uh, agree to if they agreed to participate in the. Um, and participate in the literacy program, that's just well enough to read and write. Their children could participate in the all of the, uh, the extracurricular activities that was offered in the Freedom School in terms of uh, you know snacks and dance and plays and wonderful activities on the outside and fabric. You know, for a lot of them did sewing and they taught sewing. So you can come and collect, get some fabric or you, you're able to get these books and all these kind of things if you sign up for the literacy program. That was one of the strategies that was used in the freedom schools to get people, get some of the adults involved. And they wanted the children to participate in this very nice, fun, safe learning activity, uh, you know, at, at, at school in addition to what they were getting in their regular schools. So that was one of the things that we got them to sign, sign off on that uh, freedom vote. And they would sign that, learn to read and write, and they could sign their name. Um, there was other things that we, you know, we offered them in terms of, uh, there was, you know, we used food, you know, we went to places and we had, we set up places where they could come and, uh, you know, cook or bring their favorite exchanges of favorite meals and through the churches. We uh, did things like that. People like things that were culturally, that they were culturally sensitive to. And, uh, you know, as I said, the idea of coming and learning about your own black history and seeing plays. And we also had the uh, help of a lot of the uh, folk singers at the time 
Uh, and we had, uh, there was a uh, group that was going around putting on plays that sometimes black kids had never seen before. Uh, I can't think of the name of the group, but they, but they went throughout the South. Uh, Pete Seeger, uh, Peter, Paul, uh, Peter Paul and Mary, um, a lot of the folk, folk singers uh, came down and they performed. And this was part of the, you know, in, we, they were invited into the Freedom School. It was part of the performances. Um, so um, Bob, Bob Dylan, and uh, I can think, and there was a lot of uh, uh, the staple singers. There were some gospel singers and things like this. Entertainers, you know, they're using that today, probably not as much. But, you know, we had the entertainers at the time who came around and, and you know, that was very, very supportive of the movement. And uh, But the clothing, the sewing, um, things of that nature, the books that kids could get, and things of that nature was very active as an incentive. And also with the nurse, the medical staff there, they could offer uh, some, you know, some medical treatment. And then uh, I remember a situation where a person was hospitalized and they acted as um, social workers, uh, social activists to get, um, advocate for better care within the medical community in the hospitals, things of that nature. They acted as those kind of catalysts to help you know, in those areas, whatever the person's needs were, medically, socially, whatever, they were uh, advocates. They were advocates in all those areas. That, that was the, the com composition of the Freedom Summer uh, college students who was uh, helping, you know, the community to solve whatever problems that were within their community, in addition to getting them to register and vote. Yeah, wow. So what I'm hearing is that the foundation of the community was such an important part and uplifting different sectors of the community that might have needed more attention. Um, and I think that that relates even to today and what you had said about the entertainment uh, industry and folks getting involved um, reminds me, I, there's an organization now called Headcount that goes to different big concerts and partners with really big musicians and celebrities to help their fans get, get registered to vote. So I think it really still translates um, to now how community and um, just bringing people together is such an important um, way to get folks registered to vote. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So moving now more towards present day, um, what was it like for you to witness record-breaking turnout by young Black voters in the 2020 presidential election? Well, oh my goodness, uh, two opposing feelings. It was to, I was so proud and uh, I was so proud and so relieved. And another feeling was, oh my God, we thought we had paved the way and cut out a lot of these obstacles. We didn't want to see our children and generations at this 50 some years later having to do the same thing. It was gut, first of all, gut-wrenching. I was very angry about that. And I felt very sad and uh, resentful and all the feelings, all the negative feelings that you can imagine associated with that. Why now that they have to go through this? We thought we had paved the way. We thought we had made steps and to go forward. And we find out we go 10 steps forward and then we go, you know, nine steps backwards. But at the same token, a realization that the young people were not going to allow this to defeat them. 
it was a similar attitude that we had was that we knew that we were fighting for something. We looked at the history of our country with all the wars and all the people who lost their lives. And we knew even going back to slavery, all those people who died in slavery and, all, and then all the ones that survived, we knew that they, they knew somehow they were not just doing it for themselves. They were doing it for something bigger. They were fighting for a cause much bigger than them. You have to always know that you're fighting for a cause bigger than you. The cause has to be bigger than you. Uh, that's why egos was not as much involved, you know, was there, but it wasn't much as well. We always knew that we were fighting for an ideal, an idea that we believed in, that we adhered ourselves to, a philosophy. And um, so that kept us moving and it kept us going. And at one point I thought, well, maybe the younger people don't really hold on to the same ideas that we held on to, but to see how they took risks and there's been other lives lost. Young people have been, I've seen the Black Lives Matter people on the, they've gotten beat up and they just refuse to accept this defeated attitude that I am less than a human being. But like us, I feel as though they are fighting for their dignity. And the thing that happens is, you don't, there, there's a war. There's always going to be a war when you have opposing ideologies. You might not completely win the war, but you can win some battles. We've won some battles. That's why we're where we are today. You won't win the war, but you will, you will win some battles. And in order to win some battles, you have to fight. You have to continue to fight. You have to continue to fight. There's no such thing as letting go. You have to keep fighting. And you will win some battles and you will see some movement. And you have to not think about just yourself. You have to do it for the generations to come. And that has to go, has to be written in the that has to be written in that book too. That has to make a mark in that indelible ink as well. If you give up, then you you're saying that you don't believe in yourself anymore. You you don't believe in the people who fought before you. You don't believe in anything anymore. Yeah. Persistence and resiliency, I think, are such strong um, identifiers of the current movement and tenacity, continuing tenacity, on. Tenacity, you tenacity. You doing it because you're doing it for something bigger than you are. The ideal is yes. bigger than the person. These young people cannot be stopped. <laughs> they cannot, you will not stop them. So you'll forget it. You will, you will actually exhaust yourself trying to stop them. But I have every confidence that we will survive and we will get, we will get rid of a lot of these uh, voter suppression uh, laws we will find ways around them and we will win and we will be victorious. So before our final question, I wanted to ask you something um, related to experiences I've had um, being on a college campus and trying to increase voter registration and engagement. Um, something that uh, we hear often is that people believe that their vote doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. And so I just wanted to hear from you, what would you say to someone who thinks that, that their vote doesn't matter? You know, I'll say something that someone said to me a long time ago. 
Um, the person that said that their vote does not matter does not see the connection with voting and whether or not they are, um, the, 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 uh, the sanitation men come by your street to pick up your garbage. Uh, people that say that don't understand. By the time you are, you have a birth certificate, you know, you're born into this world, you have a birth certificate. You're involved, you're in the system, you're involved in the system. And uh, if you think that your vote don't matter, look at places where people don't vote as much and look at the services that they have and look in the places where people do vote and look at the services that they have. All you have to do is make comparisons. If you can take them on a tour, take them on a tour, take them to a school, take them to a community, and you tell me whether or not your vote matters. And the mere fact that people died for the right to vote, um, people lost their lives. And they're, and they're not the only people that lost their lives. Megger Evers had gone out and fought in World War II, had been in World War II. He came, he was shot down in his garage, in front of his house. He was been a soldier. He had gone out and fought for the ideals of trying to, for this country, for what we represent. He was killed. Uh, and uh, a lot of people have lost their lives for that right to vote. So you're gonna say all of their lives are in vain? You talk, I, talk, I bring up all the time, Mickey, Michael Swerner, Andrew Goodman, James Cheney. They died because they were, trying to, they were trying to get people to increase their voter registration so they would have some power to be able to place a person in Congress, to place a person in office. They died. Did they all die in vain? Was that for nothing? You know, how can you say that your vote don't matter? If you, so you're saying that all everybody who lost their lives for that right to vote, then you're saying their life didn't matter at all. You have to do it, if nothing else, to respect those persons who done, those fallen heroes before you. Definitely. That's what it comes back to a lot of times for me is, especially like we're doing with this podcast, Living the Legacy, um, and especially for those who have lost their lives fighting for our rights to vote. Um, so thank you so much for answering that question. Um, so our final question is, what advice would you give to student activists today who are still fighting for the right to vote? Well, um, what advice I'll give, I probably mentioned it uh, in what I said earlier. Don't give up and you have to pick your battles and you have to be, get involved in the things that you get involved with that means something to you, if not for you, the people that's going to come after. Do not get discouraged. Be tenacious. Be determined. And continue the fight because you will not win the war, but you, you can win many, many, many battles. And that's what you're after. You want to win those battles. Small ones, little ones, big ones, medium-sized ones, because all of that would lead to to the to the end of the war but i think as long as you're living in your life here on earth you're going to be involved in a war it's a war just to survive living here so you got to accept that don't think that it's going to be easy and continue to be tenacious and never never ever give up because when you give up that means that you say i no longer have dignity i no longer have a reason to be respected I'm not a human being anymore. I am a human being. I'm, I deserve to be respected. And my dignity is at stake. 
my dignity is at stake any battle that I go into. That's what's at stake. Thank you. Thank you for those very powerful work and um, just the, the idea and the need to never give up. Um, so thank you so much. It's been such an honor talking to you today and getting to hear more about your story and also getting so much great advice from you as a young person myself. So thank you. Thank you for having me. This concludes this week's episode of Live the Legacy. Thank you to Bernice Sims and Wynne Garfinkel for this amazing conversation. And a special thank you to Tabik Music for all of the music that you heard throughout today's episode. If you enjoyed today's episode, please rate us and leave a review. And don't forget to subscribe so that you never miss an episode of the Live the Legacy podcast. Until next time, this has been your host, Mo Banks with the Andrew Goodman Foundation. Bye, everyone. Thank you.